Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hey there, rugby fans. Welcome to another great episode of the Rugby Rant Podcast Show with your team. My name is Ty Braga, your host for today's activities alongside Rob, the Hammer Hammerschmidt, and of course, Scott, the big guy Ferrara himself. That makes up the Rugby Rant team, but we have one more here to battle the boys in this rugby debate episode. So we welcome Wendy to the show. Wendy, you are from the Scrum Half Connection, and uh, we welcome you here to be able to challenge the boys. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Super excited to be here. And, you know, as a female in the sport of rugby, this is probably my 700th time challenging the boys. So let's go. <laughs> <laughs> no, nothing new to you. I like the spirit. I like the spirit. Okay. So, boys, the uh, challenge has been thrown out there, and I think it's going to be a worthy opponent. Rob, uh, are you our current champion at the moment, or is it Scott? Remind us. No, I think our last guest. Oh, was uh, yeah. it? Was it Rick? I think it was Rick Collins. Yeah, he was right. He he banged the trophy. Bullshit. That's what that is. (laughs) (laughs) Nevertheless, I'll take it as a win, though. You know, anytime the big guy doesn't win, it's a win for me. Right, right. Yeah. (laughs) Just vote for anybody else then. Okay. I like it. So here we are in the rugby debate episode. If you are tuning in for the first time, allow me the opportunity to be able to share how it works. So between these people on screen, they are going to debate the topics at hand. Each of them have two minutes to be able to rant. Now that will give them the opportunity to put forth their best points, state their case, and come the end of this episode, whoever has done the best job possible in this rugby debate will be crowned our winner. The points mean nothing, but the title is all the bragging rights. So we have our crack team here to be able to debate on this occasion, chosen by you as the fans of the MLR Fan Zone, the grassroots development program and incentives attached to it, as we offer the floor to each one of them to explain it and to offer further insight into its implications, good or bad, when it comes to rugby in North America. And to start us off, we're going to hand it over to Rob Hammerschmidt. Thanks, Ty, and and welcome, uh, Wendy. It's a pleasure to have you on. So I'm going to start first real quick by saying um, I I just want uh, the uh, uh, lodge a complaint with the league last week as I was doing that. I noticed that I received a yellow card and shouldn't have. I was actually 15 seconds short of my two minutes. So I just want that to be known. But I'm going to make it quick. Basically, I want to say this. Um, The youth development as a tiered salary cap, depending upon the number of participants that uh, an MLR team is able to get involved, and it goes from 50 at uh, at increments there, um, all the way up to 500. And and I like this for a lot of reasons. It has flexibility. And one of the areas of flexibility is Scott talks about it. The bigger market teams have a bit more of advantage, obviously, because they have more more uh, potential players to bring in to reach that higher mark. Um, and that would be a naturally good thing for the bigger markets like New York, uh, like LA, like uh, San Diego. I also like the flexibility in in this uh, youth program because. Um, it allows the MLR organization to adapt to its market. So you see the difference in like New England, where they've got these 12 little teams, little programs, and they can actually do something with the youth. They can actually run like a small, you know, six week round robin tournament, 
you know, type of thing um, and, and get their required and designated uh, sessions in and still have a kind of competitive atmosphere. Obviously, though, when you go to like Utah or you go down to Atlanta, you don't have a little smaller market. They're going to implement in a way that works for them. So I think that flexibility is great. Um, so uh, the other thing I think it encourages that's good is organizations and, and sports structures to be involved from uh, at the local level. So they're talking about things like um, involving uh, 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 the SROs, um, so the state rugby unions, um, the rec leagues, the YMCAs, the Boys and Girls Club. Here's where I think they miss the mark, and that is this. They're missing the institutionalization. We will not be able to take a step forward for developing rugby in the United States until they institutionalize it in the schools. I think that they need to put a piece in there for institutionalization so that kids start learning how to play some touch and tag rugby in schools. Okay. And, and that's the piece that I think they need to work on. All right. Excellent. So first off your first 15 seconds that you said was owed to you, you took in the first part of this rant. So you're equal. <laughs> so Okay, so let's break it down. The last part of what you said there, I mean, all of it was interesting, but the part that resonated with me most is how do you be able to get it adopted, right? So that component should have been answered, or at least by the appearance of who has been appointed and what they have planned to be able to cover that gap is the appointment of the CEO of the San Diego Legion, Guy Hagen, who is going to be the national development person, let's say that, in charge of spearheading this program, or at least driving it forward. One of the ambitious goals that is set for this person, or at least set by himself, as the press release reads, is to be able to have 10,000 school programs or after-school programs that have adopted rugby as a part of their curriculum. Now, that would be in the PE program. Should that happen? I mean, first of all, Rob, being somebody who is involved in the schooling system, being a youth rugby coach yourself, do you think that's a realistic goal to achieve within the three-year cycle that they planned? Well, I, and I guess I'd say this, without goals, you, 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 um, you can't aspire to anything. So it's, it's right. a lofty goal, but you got to have lofty goals in order to, to really have right. a, a lot of a success. So it's a but, shoot the stars and hit the moon scenario. Right. So, I, I just think they missed the mark here and that they didn't put the incentivization piece in with the institutionalization. That's a fair point there. So what you're saying is you have incentive for the clubs to be able to nurture players, but right. you haven't found the incentive to be able to carry through to be able to incentivize getting these programs into schools. Right. So w what's driving that, really? I get what right. you're saying, right? Okay, that's a great point. I'm glad we took the opportunity to be able to dig a little bit further with that one. So let's hand it over to Wendy, who, of course, is a wealth of knowledge and experience when it comes to rugby development. So let's hear your thoughts, Wendy. Yeah, I think I want to just kind of think about the foundations that they're going for here. Yes, it's really cool that they're doing the salary cap. If you meet all these incentives, you're going to get more money. Um, we don't know if the salary cap really is a thing. There's lots of <laughs> loopholes and such that Ty mentioned earlier. But I think what we need to look at is that the MLR is really looking for a way to build from the ground up. And we've talked about this for years. I've been on USA Rugby Committee after committee after committee where we are just screaming about, we've got to support the youth, we've got to support the youth, but there's more club players. But we know the pyramid got to be the biggest at the bottom. We can't build it the other way. It doesn't work, right? So I think I totally agree with what Rob is saying is I wish they would have, instead of saying, let's get in 10,000 schools because that's a cool lofty goal, we need to make it more um, a, a part of the incentive package. And I think maybe an example is to look at these single club high school teams where they have a dedicated team, maybe a paid coach who's actually teaching 
you know, and then we have these clubs that are just made of multiple schools and they're great and they're doing good things, but they're not in the school system. So they're not supported. They're not getting funded. They're not getting the buses to go to games and I mean, all those things. So I think I agree that we've missed the mark here by shooting too far, but not building those steps to get to where we really want to be to make this successful. Right. There are a bunch of bold statements, but what you're saying is it might not have the legs to be able to follow through. Um, So you spoke about also coaching and a lot of the times everybody who's been involved in in high school programs, they're mostly volunteers because as Rob has pointed out in several episodes before, you know, they're not funded by any other means. So it gets very old very quickly if you're putting in your own time and not getting much support. So I definitely understand that element is what you're saying is, yes, the plan is right to be able to build it from the ground up, but what are we doing to support that foundation? I mean, it's already going to be an ill foundation if it's only set up to fail uh, later down the road. So the intention might be right, but it comes down to the practice of it. So I think that your reservations could very well be true. Now, Scott, what are your thoughts? Well, I, I like the incentivization of it to, to push the, the teams to do it. Um, I think I, I think I said this in prior episodes that the MLR needed to step up and set the framework for the teams. And they did just that. So, you know, kudos to me. Um, but I do think, I think Rob and Wendy miss the mark because the, I think the understanding from the MLR by setting these objectives is the youth and the high school are separate. So I know for me in New York, um, if you would go into the grade school and the middle schools, most of those uh, schools don't have sports teams. So what they did was in their youth development incentive uh, program, in the in all of the required qualifications, they say, or other certified youth development programs. And what I think is what I think should be happening, what the team should be focusing on there is start your youth program for rugby and try and integrate it into the youth soccer, the youth lacrosse, the youth football. Team up with the other youth organizations. Say, we're not trying to compete for your people. We're trying to give them a because I, I don't I don't believe there's a specific time frame as far as like, you know, they, they give you a, a year, a yearly time frame to hit six minimum rugby sessions for each participant. It doesn't say when. So you could spread it out between the seasons. That way you're not fighting your youth baseball teams. You're not fighting your youth lacrosse teams or your youth football teams or youth soccer teams to get those players. And you're still getting the incentivization. So I think they did have some forethought in saying because they, they specifically talk about the high school academy team, which we're going to talk about, I believe, in round two. But I think youth on the youth side, for me, I think they hit it spot on. Right. So talking about the age group, you brought up a, a, a good point, is that you need to be able to separate high school from youth rugby program. They're identified as two different categories, right? Mm-hmm. So that, that was a good point to be able to bring up there. That category of youth takes them up to the age of 14. So you, the idea, the intention is right, that you want to be able to introduce kids to the game at a much earlier stage than what has already been happening in the U.S., which is usually, if they're fortunate enough, a high school program, but in most cases, probably college. So, yes, flag football, things like that, getting into the PE programs, they're all good points. They're all great ways to be able to introduce them. Now, it hasn't been identified. You're also right in this regard, Scott, that if you have a minimum amount of sessions that is required to be qualified with those players having, what was the number? Six, you said? Six, correct. So it doesn't say that you need to have those six consecutive sessions. It doesn't say you need to have those six within the season. It just says you need to have these players having – 
submitted this or met these requirements by May of each year to receive those incentives for the following season. So yeah, you might be able to. In that case, six seems pretty reasonable, right? Uh, you can find six opportunities to have formalized training. Now, I'll open it up to 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 Rob uh, because you have experience as a youth rugby coach. You think having six trainings is a very reasonable number uh, in amongst all the other activities that kids would be involved in at school level and in sports? Absolutely. And I think particularly at the youth level, and I'm not talking about high school here, I'm talking about the youth level, yeah. middle school, even, even upper grade school, the opportunity here to have a co-ed uh, type of program where you're doing it six weeks, uh, co-ed program. And then the last week you might do uh, two schools play each other, you know, yeah. within a school district, you have a couple junior highs and they come together, they play each other and have a little tournament on a, on a Saturday afternoon is a, is a great way to mix it in. Um, but, but that's where I think by incentivizing the institutionalization piece, it really begins to get it in the schools. So you're not, you can put it into PE and you can make that PE part of, of the, right. the whole program piece and for kids to, to do something else out after school instead of, you know, just going home and watching the tube or playing video games. Right. I mean, yeah. So even though it may be reasonable to say you got six, Obviously, the best formula is to get it institutionalized, as you said before. So it circles back around to your point there. Now, it kind of also ties into what you had said, Wendy, though, is that even though it may be a reasonable ask to be able to have six formalized trainings, to have it recorded, you still have to then, if it's not adopted by the schools, as Rob pointed out in a PE program, you still have to rely mostly on volunteers. And if not, where are you going to find paid staff and the funding to be able to do that? I mean, what is your experience in that regard? Yeah, I think we can look at USA Rugby's Rookie Rugby program. Fantastic incentive, you know, get a package with balls and flags and all the things you need to basically hand to a middle school teacher and say, please do this in PE class, right? And it was super successful in some areas and just a disaster in other areas. So I think, you know, we can hope that we'll have those really cool volunteers that will pick this up if we can't institutionalize it. But I think we've just seen that happen and not happen across the country. So I think right. I would still like to see some more teeth in this. And I, I mean, I totally agree with Rob. Six weeks sessions, you know, boys and girls, let's get them out there. Maybe they're the halftime show during the MLR match. Like that is so great and fantastic. And what a great, you know, thing for their program to do. So I think there's nothing but good things to do here. But to really make it be something, we need more. So in your experience, you know, you've obviously been involved at different levels of the game for quite some time and in the Texas Rugby Union and among, I'm sure, a long list of other resume, resume uh, points there. Is this just more of the same or is this something unique that rugby hasn't seen in development? I'm tempted to say it's more of the same, but then, you know, I went to Gilgroni's, one of their early sessions where they had the kids out and they were doing just, you know, learn rugby, run on rugby 101. They had like 250 kids out there. Right. And we've had, you know, in the Texas Rugby Union, in the Oklahoma Rugby Union, where I came from, we had have had, excuse me, we've had plenty of times where they've tried to simulate this and get 10 kids, get 20 kids, never seen them break 100. So, you know, clearly the commercialization there, the marketing, the support, if it's done right, I think you're going to get more bank for your buck and more kids. Right. And, you know, there are similar results being boasted at uh, Sabercats as well. Um, and similar results, I'm sure, for, for others. I mean, I don't want to discredit yeah. any other thing, but I'm saying you can echo the very same uh, results across the league. So perhaps it's not so much of how it's being done, it's who's driving it that makes the difference. Yeah. 
Um, so that's a great uh, point there. I think we've summed it up and we understand that youth is from, uh, or should I say up until an age of 14. So when people are looking at this, they have to be able to understand there is a difference between what we consider as youth rugby. A lot of people might just you know, package it together with high school because they consider that as youth being under 18. Yes, maybe traditionally, but they've clearly identified a group far younger than they have ever tried to target before. And they're trying to be able to get into school. So the intention is right. Still remains to be seen how it's going to come to be, but the intentions are good. Maybe it is, as Rob said, shoot for the stars and you hit the moon and let's see what happens. But let's take a quick break as we share a few words from our sponsor. And welcome back, Rugby Rant fans. Of course, you are watching the Rugby Debate Show, where we put our guests to the test as they debate the hot topics in Major League Rugby and Rugby in North America. And today, we are talking about the grassroots development plan and incentives attached to it. First round was to talk about youth rugby and, of course, how it will work. We got our views. We got our points made. Now we move on to the next to talk about high school level and the academies associated to those that were outlined in the grassroots development plan. Now, to be able to start us off, we start this round where we ended the last. So we hand it over to Scott Ferrara. Your two minutes start now. So they, they kind of split up the academy development incentive into two separate things. Um, one high school academy team, one developmental academy team. Um, so pretty much the difference is obviously age and competition. Um, what I do like about the high school academy team is it can bring kids who might not necessarily have a high school team to go to or have enough interest uh, in the school to have a high school team to go play on a, um, a almost a club side. Um, I mean, you know, some some of the kids are doing them now, but I wonder how much the competitions mesh um, playing against each other. Um, and also as Wendy uh, talked about in the youth segment, the commercialization of those teams um, could bring some names out or bring, you know, not necessarily names, but numbers out to these uh, Academy systems. Um, they have to do a certain amount of trainings. They only have to compete in at least four matches, which I think is a solid number and very attainable. Again, um, they could play other tier one high schools or similar select side uh, competition. And that's the same thing for the developmental side. I think having that lower number of sanctioned matches is what's going to get this off the ground currently until they build this system up. Right. So you need to be able to start small and build from that platform. So I recognize the importance of making the goals attainable because from there you'll build your program, you'll build confidence in the program as well. Uh, because let's be honest, I mean, American rugby has seen several versions of what we're talking about now, but I don't think many of them has been so well thought out or been in a better position because it's being driven by, as you said, these commercial properties of major league rugby. And you did also, you corrected yourself. And I think it is worth noting, you said names. So in that regard, you've got, uh, the Sabercats that are actually including their senior players to help coach the lower levels and introduce kids to the game. And they're also getting them uh, trained up and qualified as coaches as well. So they're doing their level 100, 200, and if they wish to go further, they can. So, yeah, those are important points there. Now, to be able to help people recognize what is important about this high school academy system – Scott had done a great job of talking about that they need to be able to compete in at least four matches that are MLR sanctioned. Now that either needs to mean that it competing against another MLR category, sorry, academy in a similar category, uh, or they can compete against a tier one side in their region. Now, whether that means that they'll have their own league as a result, we don't know. That's not outlined. It's not necessary either. So, 
Talking about that, having understood that part, great points from Scott. Let's hand it over to Wendy. Tell us what you think. Yeah, I'm just thinking about um, if I'm a you know an MLR team and I'm established, maybe I'm San Diego. I'm kind of just thinking big picture here. Do I try to go for all three of these, right? And we're not we haven't talked about the um, homegrown player designation yet, but do I take a big swing and try to do all three of these, or do I try to start maybe here in the middle, right? I can start with right. the high school team and then my academy team, and I think that's maybe where I'm kind of leaning towards because I think you know there's quite a bit of high school rugby out there especially boys um it's very established and there's you know perennial programs that are just building out um you know these these athletes that are absolutely going to be in the MLR so I think that's where my focus would be on this high school and you know I think you know in Texas it's really unique because we have Austin Dallas and Houston they could have a four competition and have a a league right and play each other and travel with the MLR teams and, 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 you know, do some really cool things. But then you've got, you know, some of the other areas, Utah and some places that Canada that are pretty far apart. And that would be a lot more um, difficult for them. So I think that's one thing to look at with the high school is, is um, like you, you said, Scott, it could be very easy to get this going with only four games needed. Um, I, I do worry about, um, you know, those programs that are so established and will just not allow their players to do this possibly. Um, Because, yes, it's the player's choice, but it's also the coach has a lot of influence here um, on those young players as well. So I worry that um, we may miss out on some of those players that um, don't want to take the chance, maybe don't understand what this is. So I think the teams are going to have to be smart about how they market this out there as well and and let them know that it truly is a good opportunity. Um, Switching to the developmental academy team, I think this is great. I mean, we're seeing it already across a lot of these MLR teams, and some of them were actually – being embedded into the men's D1 competition and they're just playing friendlies, you know, and, but it's good for the men's D1 and it's great for the Academy. And um, I think this also helps if you're looking to do maybe a U24, you know, there's lots of ways to slice this. Um, And then you can have those teams play the USA under 24s. I mean, there's lots of ways to, to, I think, take advantage of this. And again, I think this is all about, if you can, I think if you go for the three, you got a youth program, you got a high school, maybe even an academy, and then you, you really take advantage of the homegrown. I think if you can pull it off, this is going to be fantastic, but it'll be tough. Right. A couple of big ifs, though, right? <laughs> but, well, yeah, I, I, I like what you said, though, in the earlier part of your, your rant there, is that you you almost you can make your choice depending on what your strategy is or where you think the most value will be for your club, your organization. It could just be targeting high school, but as you so rightly pointed out, there's a lot of great schools that already got these programs and they're doing well. So do you tap into that player pool or do you try to build your own? You know, there's going to be some overlap in this regard that needs to be debated and needs to be thought about. Um, in fact, I don't want to take the opportunity to dig into that too far because I first want to hear from Rob what his thoughts are. So let's hand it over to him. So uh, when I saw this, there was one thing I really liked. I liked the progression piece. In other words, when they go from the high school academies to the development academies, you're seeing an intensity step up a notch from 20 sessions to 30 sessions. I think that's a good thing. It shows that they're trying to put some thought into the fact that they want the uh, development academies to be a bit more of a serious player, right? Um, Here's a real big concern, and this is just from my scope of the world out here in Illinois. Um, and I, when I think about the HPP pathways that were laid out by USA Rugby, because some of the MLR teams are using the academy piece to to link in to that. And it's this. Um, it was pretty clear in the HPPs uh, that the Eagles established that that they don't want to 
take from the clubs that kids should still be playing their club rugby, right? Mm-hmm. Which for all intents and purposes here is high school rugby. We don't have teams built into the schools here, right? So my concern is, is where does this high school piece fit into the club rugby window? Does it fit in in the summer? Does it fit in in the fall? Well, if it fits in the fall, you got a problem because you might lose some athletes, some really quality athletes to, to kids playing football. Does it fit into the winter? Well, window uh, winter is out the door here. You just can't, it's not going to work. Um, and, and if you put it in the spring, are you competing with other club, your club rugby programs and pulling your cream of the crop, your best players from the high school, uh, from the high school, um, you know, club teams. Um, and so that's one of my big concerns with this, um, is I'd like to see a little bit more mapped out thought as to how this, how these academy teams are going to fit into an overall, uh, right season or window. So it's the same story again and again when you look at such a, a a country that's challenged by its own geography, right? Because you've got different districts, you've got vast pieces of of land in between major cities. I mean, Texas is fortunate enough you've got three franchises, but you know, for like for us, Rob here in the Midwest, we don't even yet have one, right? So. Right. You know, how can the same rules be applied and how can the same policies be expected to be followed? And then naturally, you won't have the same outcome. So it's pretty much in that regard, it's going to be a case by case basis. So can you cover all the bases? Probably the answer is no, no matter what you do. Right. You're just not going to hit all the important pain points. You're not going to be able to come the challenges in every regard. But again, I come back down to an important question. I'll ask it to you, Rob, this time. Is this still the best way that we've, or best plan that we've got now? Is this the way that we can connect the dots best so far? Absolutely. And I think it comes down to something that Wendy talked about, that that's resources. You know, MLR team's going to have to figure out how to best to allocate those resources. But the fact that it's incentivized at this point makes it something that the teams are going to have a vested interest in doing because ultimately it's going to clear some space for them at the MLR level. And I love that. I mean, really, there's got to be some reward in it because, yes, it takes a long time. It takes a lot of resources to be able to develop a player. Um, You know, in some cases, it might be as young as 10 or 11 years old. Then you really got to look at it as an investment in those players, right? That's the next generation. And I tie it in now importantly because if we are planning as the bigger picture to be able to host the Rugby World Cup, and this was one that was brought up by Alex Magleby that I thought was a point that resonated with us, is that you don't think about the players today. Think about the players that will be there in 10 years. Mm-hmm. That's what this is about. That's where we need to be able to begin. So is the answer very simple to say, well, we need to start with the youngest players first because they're going to want to grow up to be the Eagles players for the 2031 campaign if we should host the World Cup here. But in reality, people want results faster. They want it right now. They're impatient. And the resources that we have, can you hit all three? Do you identify just the one? I mean, these are the questions they have to answer. I'll open it up to the floor in that regard. Who wants to jump in? Well, I mean, I, I had two two things. One, um, when Wendy was talking, first started talking about it, you know, I think each team is going to have to pick and choose which um, developmental team they can do if they can't do both. And maybe yeah. a team like Utah only goes to the academy um, developmental team because there's not enough high schools in the area, knowing that they could still get their four matches in by playing select sides, by playing visiting clubs, because it's easier for the adults to move around the country as we see the Division One uh, club to play. Um, as far as Rob's uh, talking about the weather, I mean, let's be honest. You could take 
you can get space 30 times in the winter uh, um, sports window in a bubble. You can find somewhere local that's playing in a bubble, a softball field. I mean, we have them here in New York, softball bubble fields that play in the winter. You could do your 30 practices there. And then all you have to do is hit your four matches in between your spring sessions between their club games. I mean, so it is doable. It's not as I don't think it's hard as you think if you can hit it right. Yeah, I mean, what do you think about that then, uh, Rob? Well, I, I, having been somebody who's who's um, had to figure out how to plan and organize winter sessions in a bubble, a it's extremely expensive. B, we don't have. I mean, it's just my experience. We don't have bubbles big enough, and the ones that do, there's incredible amount of pressure between lacrosse, soccer, college programs, etc., uh, in competition for those spaces. It makes it really, really um, uh, cost ineffective and really difficult to do at that level of frequency. And that's just I my mean, experience. I mean, I have to do it too in in youth football. I mean, we have to go in. I mean, we're in New York. It's not like the weather's perfect, in, like it's California weather. So, I mean, it's just it's it might be a little more expensive, but it's something if it's worth doing and you have enough kids in the area to do it. I don't I don't think it's that I big just, of a challenge. I just can't think of a full size pitch where you can do it. I mean, but you don't need my, to have a full size pitch though. Well, you, you don't. don't. If, if you already I mean, you don't necessarily need the full pitch, but you would be out in the field playing your matches. But in between, you're using the bubble space, is what you're saying, uh, Scott. But the that's disadvantage. Yeah. But here's yeah. a, here's the deal. I'm going to tell you from my experience. I'm not talking. You don't have to do it in practices in full size pitch. And I'm talking about games. But right. park districts and places with green spaces in Illinois will not let you play on them before uh, April fourth, uh, April first. Right. So again, and like I said, what, what you do is you get your sessions in, you get your sessions in winter and in that transition period, and then you start afterwards. I, I All I'm saying is it's a challenge. I've been there. I've done it. Right. And it's, it's a constant headache for youth programs and youth organizations in my neck of the woods. Well, yeah, we hear that over and over, just competition for resources. The I mean, we're yeah. blessed with the weather down here, but nobody wants to play in January. It's just crappy, you know, um, I, at the risk of throwing this off completely, though, I do have one kind of thing that I think I'm overall disappointed in this plan is that there's uh, very little consideration for girls rugby or women's rugby in this. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they mentioned girls and that's fantastic in the youth. But I think, you know, that's a really big missed point that, you know, we just rolled rugby, just released the statistics and the uh, support of women's rugby has grown 43 percent. And then yeah. the amount of females actually playing the sport is up like 65 percent or something insane. Right. So I think the MLR is missing out here on a really big chunk of support fan base and then the opportunity to partner with perhaps the WPL or the women's collegiate elite that just joined um, right. up with NCR. I mean, you've got a rugby loving community that you're not engaging. You know, yeah. so we've actually spoken about this, not necessarily in that version of the conversation, but women's rugby in general. And one of the topics we actually put up as a, a vote for, I think it was this episode or maybe the previous episode that we put out to the fans to decide what they want us to talk about. And I, I posted and it was something to the effect of is women's rugby actually the best way to grow grassroots rugby. And there is a lot of merit in asking that question because it is considered the fastest growing sport among women in colleges. Uh, it is NCAA uh, um, uh, pr- programs. Um, you know, of course, the upside is incredible is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess when they speak about this, because MLR is the, is really the fathering this entire program, and that is right now only a men's program, 
Uh, that's where they have to think about their resources. I mean, it's not the popular thing to say, but if you only have X amount of money, it's difficult to justify to somebody that we need to take from this to give to that. Somebody's always going to be left disappointed. But I think you go into to Larry Monk's point a couple weeks ago where you don't have to necessarily do an MLR Academy system right now for women, but you can push on to those club teams. You can get your yeah. senior players to go there for practices. You can get your coaches to go there for practices. You've got to find a way to engage them. There's so many cheaper ways that you can do it. I mean, Rooney in 2019, Rooney had three, I think, women's matches as curtain raisers out of out of eight yes. matches, home oh, matches. That's right, so, yeah. And they were the first to have a female coach. I mean, it's just fan, you know, it's awesome. Like that's yeah, the way we have been some, some positive movements in Texas with Elaine. Yeah. Um, yeah, yes. Oh man. Why, what's her last Bassey. name? Bassey. 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 Right. Um, yeah, but I think, yeah. yeah, I think the MLR team should just push in on their local women's clubs for the next two years. See how this Academy system and this youth, youth system works. And maybe instead of going again, maybe they should think about, not doing the academy system for women right now, but focusing more on women's rugby, the high school, the, the high See, school women, girls rugby. Right. That's really, it, yeah, it would be really thing. easy yeah, in here yeah. in Illinois for, for us to do a fall women's rugby season, right? Mm-hmm. And those those girls that are really committed to playing rugby would, would kind of put in, you know, in a club, you know, play for the MLR club team. Right. And they could easily organize and play against some of the D3, some of the D3 women's programs and some of the university programs in and around yep. the Chicagoland area and be pretty competitive. I think that ultimately there are probably less obstructions. If you wanted to go this way, if you wanted to say, okay, look, let's actually put in an effort and plan a woman's program in development and a league and go the whole way there's probably less things staying in your way from achieving that than there is actually trying to adopt the, uh, the this program in grassroots because of all the things we've spoken about yep. so there definitely is merit in in saying where in this plan does it at least leave a door open for that yep. part or incentivize it yeah yep. i mean absolutely that should be without uh, saying but really I mean, it doesn't even refer to any, it refers to kids, but it doesn't yep. refer to even co-ed programs being implemented. So mm-hmm. I guess there's, there's a lot to be defined still. And, and, you know, and really there are a lot of programs that have the ability right now to do it, but the upside is far greater. And I think it might cost them less to get that audience and that player pool engaged than it would to be able to try the other way. So yeah, that's, yeah. A, that's a great point. I think that's very, very fair. You know what? I think that when it comes to youth, uh, and we covered that in the first part, now we spoke about high school, the developmental program. Let's stick around, and on the next segment, we'll make sure that we cover the uh, the top one, which is the homegrown player designation. So we'll be back after this message from our sponsors. Welcome back, Rugby Rad fans. Of course, you're watching the show where we debate the hot topics on your behalf as the fan here on the Rugby Rad Podcast Show. Now, in the first two parts, we were able to talk about the grassroots development program and the incentives attached to it by identifying the youth program, the academy program at high school level, as well as into the MLR academies. And now when those players graduate into potentially becoming professional players or at least on their pathway to becoming one, they are recognized as a homegrown player designation. So what does that mean? Well, it essentially means that the club gets to be able to call dibs on the player for 12 months, provided that they have designated that player 
to one organization, and that organization holds the rights to that player potentially for an entire year. So we're going to be talking about the merits in this, the drawbacks, and really some insightful looks from our rugby panel over here. And once again, we're going to start this round where it all started before with Rob Hammerschmidt. So uh, I really... I took a hard look at the homegrown player designation. I really came up with uh, quite a few questions. I think there are some advantages to this, and we saw it as a result of the draft. Three players specifically, Ani Mateo, uh, uh, Cameron Dodson, and Matt Gordon, those guys didn't get drafted, and they were thought, and, and there was uh, people that really thought that had seen those guys play that those uh, those three players were draft worthy, but they didn't, and that was largely because, as we've now found out, uh, they were deemed to be foreign players, thus took up an additional spot. Now with this homegrown player designation, I think it gives opportunities for players like that to be easily brought in and, and identified, brought into the fold, and naturally flow into a particular MLR team because those guys all have are of the caliber to do that. Some of my concerns, though, is that does it, when I first saw this, does it eliminate the need for a draft, right? If if you can, if a team could designate as many players they want, so long as they meet the criteria, you know, you can bet that the teams are going to be incentivized to identify those players. And then um, those better players aren't going to be draft available. So what's the point of having a draft, right? Um, I think it also creates a problem with uh, the D1A training window. Will there be enough time for players that are playing in high level college uh uh, programs. I'm thinking Life. I'm thinking Lindenwood. Uh, I'm thinking St. Mary's out in the West. Teams like that. I mean, there is no downtime for guys like that, right? Will they be able to fit in the number of of matches? Fit in the number of training sessions? And will those guys have enough time downtime in order to rest and recuperate and play their best rugby? Um, so it just doesn't allow. And my concern is those college players doesn't allow a break in their calendar for them to get to get a little rest and and to, to recuperate. Right. So to be able to identify when you talk about the workload that they need to be able to put in. So guys at a college level, at the high level college programs are already doing a full week in terms of training. Then, of course, into the season because they're the they're they're more uh, higher demanding programs. Right. So what is the demand of a player to qualify to be a homegrown uh, player or homegrown player designation to achieve that. Well, the team needs to identify that this player has attended 35 plus training sessions or having competed in competition format with them to be eligible for that. So yeah, you could see a possible conflict. You could see it being too demanding for some players. But I think one of the most interesting points that I enjoy that you said there, Rob, is essentially, will it undermine the value and the purpose of the MLR draft? Because you could, in theory, it isn't yet outlined, it isn't yet identified saying, okay, you could identify a player as a part of a homegrown platform and say, I have rights to this player for 12 months. Now, what that also means is if they go into college and decide to pursue higher education because maybe they were identified through their academy before doing so, even when they finish their college rugby, they still then hold the 12-month rights after he's finished his college education. Right. So first of all, then that takes away the, the, the college draft because, well, I have rights. But who's to say how often you can have those rights and what is the amount of players that you can call dibs on? That hasn't been outlined. So big question mark. Let's hand it over to Wendy. 
Yeah, I think this is really interesting. Um, and and I think there's, like you're saying, I think there's just a lot of questions that I still have. It's almost too loose, this framework, which I get why it's loose, right? It wouldn't work otherwise. Because again, we're requiring that they either have an academy, they've got to, it's got to be real. These players got to be 12 months or 35 trainings. I mean, they've got to meet all these requirements, you know, and, and like you mentioned, these are guys that are, you know, potentially going to play for these really big clubs and maybe they want to go do that and then go to the MLR, you know, so it depends also on what path they're looking for and, and just career choices. These are, you know, 18, 20 year old kids that there's a, the world is at their oyster. And, you know, so there's a lot of tough choices they have to make. I, I think I'm, you know, mostly concerned about uh, teams kind of taking advantage of this because there's no, you can only do it for five players. You can only do it for, you know, you could essentially pick a team of 15 and just say, we've got all 12 of these. They went to every single training We've got our next academy team for the next year, you know, and you, you could also do it on like a rolling basis of, you know, Calvin's going to be our 12 month guy. He's just going to be our guy, you know, and no one can touch him. Um, so I think there's just some questions there. And, and I totally agree with Rob. I think losing potentially losing the draft. I mean, it was very exciting. It's, it's uh, it super exciting for the players, you know, and, and again, it just, it, it just is lifting the league. And I think they kind of shot themselves in the foot a little bit there. Right. It might be counterproductive, uh, you know, only time will tell. But you yeah. also made a good point. What if a team did decide, okay, well, you know what? I got I got a squad of 15 guys here that I identify this year. And next year I identify those guys. You know, if if they – to be able to say, okay, well, look, we're going to identify them. They need to have 35 training sessions. So on the flip side of this, there's resources that are required. We spoke about resources before. So if you were to say, I'm going to claim – designation homegrown player designation rights and these 15 guys this year and these 15 guys this year you're saying i'm investing in them because i'm willing to be able to provide the resources for 35 training sessions plus being able to cop them to matches i mean you would assume that they're not going to ask players to be able to pay to play because then you're just entering a whole nother cycle that will repeat it negatively again as it has in the past so there is merit in saying that these guys are actually choosing to say, okay, we see something in this player. We spot a potential. We want to grow them. We want to be able to give them the opportunity. So if they spend the time to to invest in them, why shouldn't they reap the rewards of them graduating into MLR? And if they choose not to be with that organization, should they still be able to be compensated for the time they spent with them? That's another question, right? Is that reasonable? Let's hand it over to Scott before we answer that to hear what his thoughts are. Um, you know, I missed it. I missed my opportunity on the first two ones, so I'm going to do it right now. I forgot my my signature trademark because I've been so fired up about these topics. So I'm going to get hot with you guys right now. I'm going to disagree with Rob and Wendy as far as the as far as the collegiate draft is concerned because we don't know the implications on somebody going to one of these academy teams and what it does for their eligibility because we already know from the draft if they if they declare for the draft um, and they sign with an agent, well, you know, their eligibility at university could be murky um so i wonder if now working with this commercial team this professional team outside of that does anything to their eligibility that's a question i don't think us three have the answer to it Mm -hmm. but the the one thing i will agree is and wendy brought it out there what's stopping a team from using this right and it it can hurt the player if if you keep designated a player and you never bring them up to the big club and you just kind of wasted that guy's time We've seen that happen in the MLR already with every team in the league who's given the guys the restricted player allocation and specifically guys who you, who they know, you know, 
can probably move on to a different uh, um, um, team or a different area and go play. And they've made it that much harder for them, knowing they weren't going to sign him. So you didn't, you didn't sign him. You, you told the guy outright, we're not signing you, but we're not going to give you the outright release. We're going to hold on to you. And now we're past the window of free agency. So by the time the guy can get signed, it'll be in the middle of the 2021 season. So they've already abused the free agency side of it. So how we know they're going to abuse it on the, on the designation side. Right. I mean, it's, it's, it's a lot of gray that is yet to be defined. And if we know, you know, how things go, you'll find a way to be able to use that to your advantage. So I guess, how do you police it? And then is it going to be an unequal standard? Because some teams will use it one way and another team will use it another way. I mean, these are the pain points of having a young league and starting something new. So let's open it up again to, to uh, Rob. Rob, Building on the two of the points there with Wendy and, and Scott, do you think teams will look to be able to take advantage of the system? Well, wouldn't you? It's a business. I mean, you're going to take every advantage you can when you're trying to run a business and, a, and especially in the sports world. I think the answer, I, I'd answer the question of eligibility that Scott raised to we do know. I mean, as long as they don't sign a contract and talk money, they can they can um, be engaged with a, an academy program Um during college, they've made the agreement with D1A. They have the windows, December 15th, January 15th, from June 15th to August 15th. Those are the two windows available. And that was kind of my point, is that can you squeeze right. in enough of those training, 20, 35 training sessions in there between those two windows, knowing that your D1A kids, while they don't really, I mean, the D1A kids like Linenwood, they really don't start start to get into training until September. And then they start their games in about early October. Right. But you're still talking about what you're going to give the kids a month off during the whole year. I mean, that's just not enough for a young body to recuperate. And and yeah. that's, a, that's a big concern I have. And uh, even though they, I understand they gave them the window, I understand they gave them the window on this agreement, Rob, but that doesn't mean, I mean, we've seen it in every sport, in every collegiate sport where all of a sudden these weird rules pop up and you have administrators coming and said, yeah, but you know, you talk to so-and-so during lunch. So your eligibility is gone. You know, so I'm, I'm, I'm just, not, no, 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 I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm saying, yeah. no, I'm saying I see where you are on the broader yeah. picture that they want to try and do it. And help each other mutually, but I could just see it going down the path, especially as we're trying, if we're trying to create the same atmosphere that you know the big D one, um, the other D one sports have. You know, it, it mur- muddying that water now. I don't know is is the best thing. Yeah, I mean that first year it's going to happen is going to be an interesting year because there's going to be I, I know players that had it with a draft. They had real concerns about what the, what entering the draft would do to their college eligibility. And I know that there are college eligibility issues within D1A. Um, they happen at Linwood. You're right. Yeah, so, I think that's the, uh, sorry, Wendy, I'll let you finish your thought there. No, no worries. I think that's probably the biggest thing for me is is just the unknowns here. It's too this is too loose. It's a fantastic idea. I think it's exciting. Right. But I think everybody's going to abuse it, and and they're going to abuse it in different ways. Right, they're going to get creative, right? Yep. <laughs> but let's let's take a moment because we have offered some criticism. It would only be fair to be able to talk about some of the upsides should it work out as intended. So one of the great upsides is at least the incentive basis, right? So first upside is you're talking about growing talent locally. You're talking about nurturing that talent from age grades all the way through to eventually graduating to hopefully becoming uh, professional rugby players at home in the U.S. and Canada. Uh, 
Now, what that means is that hopefully they're creating a more defined pathway from a younger age. There's an upside there. The intention is good. Whether it comes to be that way and they can connect all the dots remains to be seen. The other upside is the incentive to be able to provide a little bit of a reward for the teams. That is rumored to be from sources that are kind of close to us, anywhere between five up to 10% addition to your uh, your salary cap. And if that is true, as high as 10%, that's an additional 50000 that you can spend on your salary cap, which is a great uh, value to, to clubs. I mean, right now in the climate where the highest paid player is 45000 that's a big, you know, signing for, for a team. So would you spend that on one player or would you choose to be able to spend that on the players that you're graduating into the MLR side? Because now you can offer them a salary. You can have more on your roster. Well, I want to be able to take some time while we spoke about some of the criticisms. Let's look at the positives for a moment. And what are some of those that we can, that we, we take from this? Well, I, Sorry, Rob. Um, Real quick, I think one point that all three of us missed was the homegrown player designation also applies to the high school developmental team. So you can have it. It doesn't. It doesn't say if you look at the rules. It doesn't say it has to be in the last twelve months. It just has to be twelve calendar months and thirty-five training sessions. So if no, no, prior to the season, right? Because you have to declare them in May and each year. Not. Not f- no, you have to declare you have to declare the person homegrown. But I, where does it? Because it says here twelve calendar months and thirty five training sessions to be a homegrown player. It doesn't um, say the last. It doesn't say the last twelve prior, months prior to the season. Yeah, it's con- it's consecutive. Then, I believe then it's how, consecutive. Then, then how you have a high school developmental player be considered homegrown? That that wouldn't make well, sense. Well, maybe this is a good point. It isn't so clearly understood. I mean, because it doesn't. It's to me. I'm I'm looking at it right now. It says twelve calendar months and thirty five training sessions, or competes in at least eight uh, competitions and has the thirty five training sessions to be considered homegrown on the high school or developmental squad. So Okay, so the other note that I have here, so is to qualify for any of the 2021 salary incentive options, teams must verify completion of the respective incentive by May 31st, 2021. Uh, the homegrown player rights will begin tracking from the first date of involvement and follow through the 2021 season. So I don't know if that answers your question, but that's at least how I mean, they phrase I- it. So, so to, to the point I was going to make, Ty, is I think one thing that would be interesting about this, and I think of a kid like Connor Buckley from Iona, you know, it's a kid that would have been incentivized actually to stay and go to college at a program close, right? To, in his case, close to Rooney. He can train and do his Iona thing, and then during those windows of opportunity in the D1A schedule, he can actually train with the academy program and. um become then a homegrown player designated by Rooney and it'll work pretty seamlessly for a kid like him. So it encourages kids to stay close to right. their clubs. And that would of- work well when you are the only team in your estate. But in right. Texas that might not work so well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah they're gonna be grabbing a lot of competition. From all over. Right. Yeah. And I do I totally agree that this the like I talked about my first point, this foundation from the youth all the way up I think is absolutely fantastic. I just think that in this first year, this being rolled out, you're going to have teams pick. They're going to do the high school team. They're going to do the academy or they're going to do the youth, which there's nothing wrong with that. 
because they're like we said, they're going to pick what's best for them and their resources and the time and the money and the funding they've got. Um, so I think, you know, I would almost advise pick one and, and do it the best you can. Right. And and that, I believe, is probably one of the best ways to do it. I mean, be realistic about what you can achieve and then yeah. do one thing, do it well, if that's what you can do. Um, rather than trying to tackle everything and from 40 different angles, I mean, right now, some of the criticism I have for the general rugby fan in the U.S. is they keep looking at the MLR and go, well, they should do this. Oh, they should do this. They should do this. How many things do you want them to do? You know, like they need to have a focus. And this is now provided a pathway, a plan. Is it perfect? No. Is it the best option that we have and probably the most well thought out and connecting more of the dots than it has before? I personally think that, but that's why we're here to debate it. So let's hand it one more time around the table. Your final thoughts on this subject of grassroots development and the incentive program will start again where we started it all. Rob, you start us off. I think it's great. And I think it's great. I think, you know, for all the, all the lack of um, uh, clear, clearly fine de- uh, defined details, the bottom line is teams are just going to have to pick the path that's going to work for them and they're going to make it work. And you know what? In five years from now, they'll figure it out. They'll figure out a way to do each part of this effectively for themselves. Right. The important part is the intention is good and you got to start now to get reap rewards later. Wendy. I completely agree. I think this is really good. And I think we've made lots of mistakes over the years where we've had these kind of frameworks and they've been too specific. They've been hard to achieve. You know, the KPIs were ridiculous. Um, so I think almost having this loose, even though there's some ambiguity that's a little concerning, I think this is a really good place to start. And I totally agree. Pick one, two, maybe do it the best you can. And I would throw a challenge down to all the MLR teams that you should include your women. Find a way to do it. They're going to be your biggest fan base. And like we said, they're probably the cheapest right now. So go for it. Right. Absolutely. Agree with you there. Scott. Um, Well, I think you're you're going to see each team come and start doing their own thing. Um, I think what, what we're going to see with the homegrown player designation. And I think it's something I kind of got cut off from before. I think eventually as the high school team development starts, you're going to see a kid who can go play on the high school development team in Rooney, go out to the West coast and play in college and still be designated as the homegrown player. Because as far as I'm looking at the details, it doesn't say anything prior 12 months. It just says 12 months, including the high school developmental schedule. So, you know, I think we're going to see more young kids who come from a, come from a city, go do their thing in college, and then come back to that city and still be eligible to be homegrown for the MLR, their home MLR team. Right. So you're saying that's a good thing because yeah, it's a, it, goes across to, to San Diego and it's a, a good thing because it still gives the kid the, yeah, it gives, it gives the kid the option to say, you don't have to stay in, you know, in New Rochelle because you're from Brooklyn and then because you want to play with Rooney, you could, if you want to make your own decision to go play somewhere else. Um, Maybe I'm not understanding your point, but hold on. Let me let me let me just drill down. Right. So you're saying so okay, let's see, let's use Connor Buckley so, as an example. Let's use Connor Buckley as an example. According to these according to these rules, Connor Buckley could be on the could have been on the Rooney High School developmental squad, meet the requirements of 35 and uh, be practices in high school, then okay. go to UC Berkeley, play in in four years over in California and then still come back to New York if he, that's where he wants to live and be on Rooney and be designated as a homegrown player. 
player. Right. He doesn't have to do the local bit that Rob is talking about. Right. What I'm saying is now let's imagine he goes from there, does his studies in California, has the opportunity to be able to play with the San Diego Legion, but he's denied because there's a 12 month uh, exclusivity. So he has the only, his only option is now narrowed to the one team that he was designated for and blocking him from all the others. Yeah, but that's the decision. That's the decision you have to make. That's the commitment you're making to doing. You're asking these you're, trainings you're, you're and being eighteen year old kid to make that decision. Yeah, but you're but you're asking those kids, same kids to do it in Europe when they're paying to be in these other academy systems to to go with these academy systems, and that's where a lot of people are saying we should be heading to. So what's at that point? What's the difference between what what everybody's asking for for the European system to come over here? Because they're established. Yeah, I mean they they they've yeah, gone. We're, through- we're, we're establishing we're establishing our framework to do it here. So I don't think we got to start you know, somewhere. I totally agree, but I'm happy to sign with Leinster, but I don't know about signing with Sandy. You know, right? Like, I mean, I can see those concerns. All right. So a lot of interesting points. We could probably spend another hour because I feel like Scott and I got something going there. Um, so on that note, though. We do need to be able to uh, proclaim a winner of this round. And as you remember, the points mean nothing, but it's all about the bragging rights. And as it stands, after three rounds, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, it, it hurts me to be able to say it, but I think I want to give it to Scott. <laughs> I think it pains me to admit it, that he was consistent throughout the end. And it prompted some good. It's like a bad rash, isn't it? Yeah. So (laughs) you're just, again, Rob just gets mad because I'm the overall leader. He has yet to catch up and make it a, make it a, you know, close match here. Uh, And, and Rob, you have to be able to know that it hurts me to be able to announce, (laughs) but you know, you gotta, you gotta give credit where credit's due, but ultimately all of you contributed phenomenally to the topic. You've all got great merits in what you had to say. I think ultimately we all agree that while it's certainly got a long way to go, the intention is right. Uh, it comes down to the practice. There's still a lot yet to be defined. There's a lot of question marks, but this has the ability to be able to connect the dots in training and, and development that hasn't necessarily existed before. And that's probably because it's being driven by Major League Rugby on this occasion. I hate to say it, but it is probably true. And there's a lot of partners that want to see it successful. And most of all, it may very well help rugby grow as a whole. And that's the case. Isn't that a win? Yeah, it takes the pressure off of USA Rugby. For sure. Absolutely. And, you know, I mean, in these times, maybe they need a little helping hand. Oh, yeah. Who cares where you get it, right? As long as it's all headed to the same direction, many paths to go to get to where we want to be, but it's best if we do it together. So, again, uh, from myself, Ty Braga, the host of the Rugby Rant podcast show, and on behalf of the team here with Rob Hammerschmidt, Scott Ferrara, and Wendy Young, we thank you for watching this episode of the Rugby Rant podcast show, and we'll see you at the next one. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. 
Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real Traveler Reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you. With professional-grade industrial supplies, count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.